0: Thank you for listening to Willamette Community Church's sermon series online. Join us as we hear from special guest speaker Doug Tharp, ACS's principal, and his thoughts on biblical maturity. Good morning, Second Service. It's good to be with you today. It's my privilege and our privilege today to hear the word of God spoken to us from our new Albany Christian School principal, Doug Tharp. I'm going to have him come up here in just a moment, but I just want to say what a blessing he has been to me. And to our staff, uh, since we've got to know him in early July, and today he's going to open up the Word of God with you, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, he's going to share some of his life. I've asked him to do that, and he, it's, it's going to be a blessing. I, I was here first service, but I'm sticking around second service, too, because nah, I just want more of what God has to say for me and for us through Doug. So would you give Doug a nice, big, warm welcome this morning? Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Scott. As Pastor Scott said, uh, first service uh, was uh, f- for me a chance to share a little bit about uh, our life, my life, our kids' life, um, in in the context of what it means uh, to grow spiritually. And uh, by no means, I don't think there's any one of us in here who would say we've reached um, our goal that we're all mature in Christ. Uh, we're all in process, aren't we? And so for uh, the last three weeks, what we've been going through is the uh, maturity series. And let me start just a little bit uh, by sharing a little bit about my family. Carolyn and I have three boys, Ryan, Brett, and Cooper. Brett's in the middle. He is a uh, George Fox graduate. Uh, He's an engineering major. He has a Little boy Lucas, little girl Anna Leigh. There's our two little grandkids. And uh, he works for uh, Siemens Electric in Portland. And Ryan is on the right. You're, yeah, it's the right up there. He's uh, also a George Fox graduate. He is uh, working for, he also graduated for uh, Lewis and Clark Law School, He's now working for Nike in Portland. And then there's Cooper, the U of O fan. Some of you know Cooper. He uh, is uh, also an engineering major at George Fox University uh, as a sophomore. And all three of these boys uh, know Jesus as their Savior, um, and they are in the, on the path of growth as well. And like you and me, that, that pattern sometimes is up and down, and it's sporadic. But the important thing is that they're on that path and that they're moving forward toward, and they're in that process of maturity. My wife and I and the boys grew up uh, for about 17 years. Uh, We were with Wycliffe Bible Translator for 17 years. Spent 13 of those years in Papua New Guinea. Um, They grew up speaking Sulka as a a second language. They lived in a grass hut. They ate birds and bugs. And they learned to fish with just a fish hook and a line wrapped around an old uh, piece of wood, beach, beach wood they found on the beach. Uh, they dug out uh, canoes from fallen trees. Um, they had a great, great life in, in Papua New Guinea. And so we worked there as Bible translators, uh, translating uh, the Bible, the New Testament and portions of the Old Testament for the Sulka people uh, in East New Britain in province. And it's just a small little island off the coast of, of Papua New Guinea. And Papua New Guinea is just north of, of Australia, if you know your geography there. So like I said each of these boys uh, learned about Jesus as an early at an early age um, Carolyn homeschooled the boys in the village every day uh, as they uh, grew up and uh, uh, each one of them made a personal commitment to, to Jesus and, and well on their way what I what I'd like to do this morning there's two uh, two particular verses and two p- specific patches passages of scripture I'd like to to talk about. And the first one comes from uh, John chapter 3 uh, with John the Baptist. And the second one is, is we're going to talk a little bit more so about Moses. And when we talk about spiritual growth or the context of the process of spiritual growth, there's not very much uh, a concise recipe, so to, so to speak. When my wife cooks a meal, she will open up the recipe book and she'll just go line by line: do this, do this, do this, do this, and do this, and whammo! She's got a great meal on the table. When it comes to helping us understand the process of Christian growth and Christian maturity, there's not a specific recipe that we can follow, and so we have to kind of take a take a specific verses and and passages in Scripture and and put some some pieces of these together to come up with with a, a, a particular pathway, so to speak. I wish, I mean, I think a lot of us wish, that if there, were, if there was a, a recipe that we could follow for the life of Jesus, we, we, we read the stories of Jesus in the Bible, and it's his birth, and then we get one little small section where he's 10 years old, and then we don't hear about him again until he's 30. And the same way for John the Baptist. He's small. Uh, as a little baby, and we don't hear from him again until he's on his way into his ministry. And we don't know what happened in those intervening years. How did they grow up? What was the maturing process for them? And so we just kind of have to infer from other passages, and that's what we'll we'll do this morning. Pastor Scott has been sharing with us that spiritual maturity is more than just coming to church, more than just wearing a T-shirt with a nifty Christian slogan on it that it's more about this process. It's an over-the-course-of-our-life event, and it takes a lot of time and a lot of, takes a lot of concentration on our part. And so what I would like to do this morning is, is try to infer what Moses, what John the Baptist was concentrating on and what were some key pieces in their life in those intervening years. So uh, John, in chapter 3... Page 888, if you have your Bible there with you. In the book of John, John the Baptist is always is portrayed up to the first three chapters as always fending off the crowds because they, always, they wanted to, to lift him up to be the Messiah. And you see John the Baptist always saying, No, no, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I'm not even somebody who is worthy not just to wash the feet of that person, but I'm, I'm not even worthy enough to untie the sandals for that person to wash his feet. So John had a, for me, what I think is a very sharp insight into his thinking as he was growing up. He had this saying, which... For me personally, in my personal Christian growth, I've adopted uh, ever since I became a Christian. John says in verse 30 of chapter 3, at at the crowd's insistence that they exalt him to the position of Messiah, he's saying, no, 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 Jesus, he's the one that must increase. I'm the one who needs to decrease. And so that's become for me a, a... a Building block, I guess, or a pillar in my or a foundational piece in my spiritual growth. Uh, having, having to know that there's a, a, a almost a, uh, a trajectory upwards and a trajectory downwards of my spiritual growth. The trajectory upwards for John's case is, is always recognizing that God takes preeminence, He, is, he, he gets all, all attention all glory, um, and for myself, I need to remove myself on the other end uh, and, and get out of the way, this upward and downward descent. And that's kind of the, the, the basic, I think, uh, passage or principle I'd like to start with. Uh, in John's life, being this, this being a very key piece into his thinking as who John is. And then as we move over to Moses... Uh, we want to find out, or let me, let me back up a little bit. Um, this idea of up and down, uh, for you men who are going through the men's Bible study at this point, you're probably going through and already have gone through this particular verse, it gives you the idea of a, a, a tree, at least in my mind. You have all of this, the, the tree trunk, the branches, the leaves, and even the fruit, which is above the ground. And then you have all of the roots below the ground. It's the idea of in, the increase and the, the decrease. And Paul gives us that idea when he talks about being rooted and built up in him. And I don't know if, if Paul is, is, is trying to make any kind of a, a comparison or giving prominence to anything. But he starts out with the roots. And, and then he goes on to the idea of being built up. And so, if there's anything that I take away from this, it's the fact that maybe perhaps the roots, what's down below, is more important than what's up top, at least in my life. It's where I need to focus. I'm not concerned about the work that happens above. The fruits of the Spirit are what? The fruits that naturally take place that God produces. I can't produce those fruits, so I don't need to focus on those things. But down below is where the roots happen things that are out of sight, things that Can be equated to the times that I'm searching the scriptures or reading the scriptures or studying the scriptures, wrestling with God um, over answers to things in life, uh, being the feet and hands for Him in the community and serving others, Uh, the things that are unseen that help that growth take place. So we see, just as we see that Moses, or sorry, just as we see that Jesus was born. And then 30 years later, he pops on the scene again. John the Baptist is born. 30 years later, he pops on the scene. Moses is the same way. We know a little bit about Moses. He's born, and then later on, he pops on the scene. So we're going to use those three as our examples this morning. And then let's turn together with, into the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, which is on page 1,108. And let's read together. This idea. Oh, when I let me share a quick story with you about this as well. When I I became a Christian when I was nineteen, and I guess that's when this when for all of us the process of Christian growth happened. I grew up in a home of eight kids, single mom, no dad in the picture, no structure in the family. Uh, we were probably as dysfunctional as as dysfunctional could be. Um, I had moved, by the time I was 19, I had moved 21 different times. We were on welfare uh, or any social assistance that we could get. And my mom worked two or three jobs on top of that. And, of course, if you're working uh, and receiving uh, social assistance, that's against the law. Whenever they found out, we'd have to move to a different county re enroll and, and, again, keep it going. So every time we got found out, we'd have to move. So we moved quite a bit. For me growing up personally, uh, I, I was unable to uh, develop any friends didn 't know how to make friends, lacked social skills did just had it, actually the reverse happened because it moved so much I learned to develop a, a skill of blocking people out, blocking my emotions out so that i didn 't have to make friends with people because I knew I was going to leave and it was a way of, of preventing me from getting hurt or just the, the shyness of a new new people all the time trying to meet people and then leave meet people and leave, I, I felt I was just a, a social misfit misfit, and so that by the time I graduated high school, uh, I felt like I had no friends in the world, that I was hopeless there was I was purposeless, literally the day after high school what am I going to do, I, mean, I was there I hadn't a clue. It wasn't maybe two weeks, three weeks later, I picked up an old King James version of the Bible and start reading about this guy named Jesus. Never been to church. Been to church once in my life. I uh, was so scared. was there about 10 minutes, ran out crying. It's the only time I've been to church. I read about Jesus, how he loved people, he befriended people, and that people flocked to him. And I thought, man, I need a friend like that. I wanted a friend like that. So I kept reading and reading and reading, and over the course of maybe six to eight months, I just began associating myself, identified myself as a friend of Jesus. He was my he was my partner, my friend in life. And I happened to be starting work at UPS United Parcel Service at that time, throwing boxes in the morning. Um, and I also had bought a necklace in the shape of a fish that said Jesus. And I was wearing it one day, throwing boxes alongside this guy. And this guy says, oh, I see your necklace there. He says, I see you're a Christian. And I said, what's that? <laughs> I had no idea. Never heard the term before. And so through the process of, of uh, throwing boxes with this guy, at 3 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock till 8 o'clock, you know, five days a week, we began talking about sin, salvation, forgiveness, grace, mercy, redemption, all the big theological words and all the, all the content that, that we have in the Bible. And I only, only know, had known Jesus up to that point as a friend. And then just kept reading and reading and reading. One day he invited me to his church. I heard the gospel clearly proclaimed uh, that day. There was a, an altar call. I came forward, was baptized. And, uh, uh, and then walking out of the church that day, I literally ran into uh, Carolyn who is now my wife, who at that time I hadn't seen her uh, in my life at all, two big brown eyes looking up at me, big pearly smile. The only thought in my head was, I'm going to marry that gal someday. And that was the last of that for a few weeks. And and then um, I moved in with a bunch of guys from that church, and it was just nothing but input, input, input into my life, uh, them pouring away. Um, And the reason I, I tell you that story is because early on in maybe the first two weeks, I picked up this bookmark at a Bible bookstore and it became the philosophy that John had talked about for me in my life as a Christian. That my, the majority of my life is spent down below. The little bit of my life that you see as a Christian is up above. And the time that it takes for growth um, is down below. For Jesus, for John the Baptist, Moses, we don't really see any of that. We can only infer, and that's what we want to do this, this morning. So we're going to go to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Let's start in verse 23. Let's read the version in our Bible. I think that one's a different version on the screen. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful And they were not afraid of the king's eating. 24, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So, again, as I mentioned, the first thing that we want to notice, verse 23 talks about Moses being a baby, being born. Verse 24, he's grown up already. There's like 40 years difference between those two verses. But we don't get that. And what is probably being referred to in this context is, if you remember the story of Moses, he grew up in Egypt, right? His mom uh, put him on the the river in a basket because Pharaoh had had given an order that all babies, uh, male babies be killed because the Hebrew population was beginning to increase so much, they were afraid of an insurgence and a taking over of the Egyptians. So Pharaoh called for all male babies to be killed. Here we're told that Moses' parents weren't afraid of that, and they hid him and put him on the Nile. Pharaoh's daughter sees him, saves him. He grows up as an Egyptian, and Stephen tells us in Acts chapter 7 in his story that Moses was taught in all the, 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 with all the wisdom of Egypt. So he's a highly educated man, uh, but yet we see that uh, uh, in, those, in those years between his, uh, his birth and this age 40, something must have taken, taken place. Because in verse 24, he starts out by saying, by faith. By faith. So what was it that Moses Moses knew in this process of growing down? Moses knew who he was. How did that happen? How did Moses know who he was? He identified with God's people. Remember in this story that he chose not to follow Egypt and he chose to not to, uh, to uh, mistreat the people of, of God. So Moses knew exactly who he was. He identified with God's people, uh, even though he had been instructed in all of the wisdom of Egypt. So the question for me is, how, how does that happen? Well, if you look in verse 23, it starts out by talking about the faith of who? Moses' parents. Moses' parents. In the original account of Moses in Exodus, that account talks about Moses' mother. He's the one, she, uh, she's the one who's in focus, saying that it was Moses' mother who hid him for three months. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen talks about the father being in focus, that Moses was raised in his father's house for those three months. And here in Hebrews chapter 11, the focus is on both of the parents that they were, uh, Moses was hidden for three months by his parents. So it makes me wonder, when we're talking about the process of Christian maturity, how influential are parents in that process? Think about your own kids, or think about yourself in light of your parents. How influential were they in your life? How influential are you in the life of your children. Ever heard of Amron and Jochebed before? I never had. Actually, that's Moses' mom and dad's name. They're only mentioned once in the Bible. Numbers 26, 59, only once. But what a huge influence they must have had in Moses' life. Doug Tharp, Carolyn Tharp, insignificant people, but what a huge difference we can make in the lives of our children. told you we had three boys, Ryan, Brett, and Cooper. Each of them were homeschooled in the village up till they were uh, 13, 14 years old. Every single day, Carolyn, my wife, shared the gospel message with them. She was the one who led each of my boys to faith in Christ. They each made a personal commitment to Jesus as their Lord and Savior from her and her influence in their life. Remember when Paul praises Timothy for the faith that's living inside Timothy? And he says, hey, that's the same faith that was living in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice. And it's that transmission of faith, the influence of parents and grandparents in the lives of children and that process of spiritual maturity. So I'm hoping at this point, you're questioning, thinking, well, what am I doing? How influential am I, am? am I in the life, the spiritual life of my child? Do I pray with them? Do I read scripture with them? Am I memorizing with them? Am I challenging them? Am I helping them uh, 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 stay on course? We have a huge, huge role to play. And that role helps them identify themselves as children of God, just as Moses identified himself as a children of Israel, right? He identified with God's people. So the second thing that we notice in this chapter is that Moses chose his course in life. Verse 24 again. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He knew who he was. He wasn't Pharaoh's daughter. He wasn't the Egyptian He was an Israelite. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses chose his course in life. He had all of the treasures and all of the pleasures of Egypt, but yet he chose to be mistreated and reproached. When we first went to Papua New Guinea, you're usually invited in to a language group. We were Bible translators, so that means we went into language groups that didn't have a written language, no alphabet. Uh, Their language had never been written down. So we were trained in linguistics. We went in as linguists, um, and we would learn the language, develop an alphabet, teach people, the the children and the adults to read and write, develop a curriculum, and then uh, preschools and kindergartens, and in return... We got to translate the Bible into their language, so it was a dual dual work. When we first got there, we uh, we thought we had been invited in. As it turns out, on this end, there was a mistake in the, the paperwork uh, of the language group that the survey was taken, and we really actually weren't invited in. But we it, it's irrelevant, but to the story here. But uh, it becomes important later on as you as you see. Um, what i 'm going to be telling you about, but anyways, we, we get there and we notice right away that we weren 't wanted it 's not the generous, hospitable group of culture people that we we were trained and taught it was going to be people wouldn 't talk with us they wouldn 't eat with us they wouldn 't help us when we were uh, sick uh, they wouldn 't help us uh, on the road they wouldn 't uh, we were we were shunned the kids wouldn 't were, were not talking with us um, we uh, we acquired all these kinds of uh, sicknesses and on our hands and then our mouth and on our nose and our ears. We couldn't figure out what was going on. And for about two or three years, we'd always be in back and forth consulting with anthropologists or anthropology consultants saying, what are we doing wrong? Why are we not being received and why are we not given a kinship term and kinship name like everybody else is who comes in to uh, uh, culture groups like this? And they could never figure it out. Or, or, you know, maybe you're doing this, or maybe you're doing that, and say, "No, we're 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 inviting people into our home. We're trying to go out and visit. We're trying to make it work, and and we, we just couldn't make it uh, make it work. Almost weekly, I would be writing a note home to our friends and family and supporters and saying, you know, this is just too much. We can't we can't do this. Maybe we're just not cut out to be missionaries." Uh, and we just can't do this. And, and, and I set it on the desk, and the next morning I get up, wad it up, throw it away. A couple of days later, I write the same letter again. We just can't do this. It's so taxing, being, feeling like we we're being so mistreated and that we were the reproach. One day, uh, uh, Carolyn, we got sick all the time with malaria. Papua New Guinea is a high malaria uh, area. And we'd always get uh, malaria. And protocol was, once you, if you take, take, you know, weekly medication so that you don't get malaria. If you do get malaria, then you take medicine every day for two weeks uh, to get rid of it. If you still have malaria after that, then it's more, a lot more serious. It's, it's usually uh, cerebral malaria, and you need in, injectable quinine in your system. And if you don't do that within 20 minutes, you die. And we saw that all over Papua New Guinea with young kids, especially older people, uh, just because of the, the, the system there, there's just no time to get anybody to uh, to treatment in time. So we were seeing people die from malaria all the time. So one, one day, Carolyn had been sick with malaria, given her the dosage for two weeks, and uh, she had improved a little bit, but hadn't improved a, a whole lot. At the end of the two weeks, um, she put her her lap-lap around her, I think that's what, what do we call it here, Her her... her piece of cloth around her, put head, dishes on her head and had Ryan on her hips going down to the river. She was going to go do dishes and wash up. She was back with an ice, and I was there just typing on my computer in the, my little office area. About ten minutes later, she comes back on the arm of a village lady, uh, just really peeking and saying she's just tired. And Like the sensitive husband I am, I said, okay, why don't you just go lay down there? And I just kept typing away. And I wasn't about, you know, five seconds after she laid down, I hear this shriek. And a sensitive guy I am. I just hey okay. <laughs> kept typing away, and I hear another shriek. Aee! And I'm thinking, oh, it didn't sound good. I better get up. So I got up and looked at her and saw the scariest sight I've ever seen in my life. She's having a seizure. Every muscle in in her arms and legs were just stiff as steel, and her her mouth was clenched shut and foaming at the mouth and breathing. Her eyes were rolled back in her head. And I freaked out, just totally freaked out. I knew that 20 minutes from now, she's gonna be dead, or we gotta get her that shot real quick. I go rummaging to our medical kit, throwing everything out, cannot find a syringe. Basic medical equipment, we take it with us every single time. I cannot find a syringe. I start screaming and yelling at God. God, why would you bring us out here? It's your fault. The last words I heard from Carolyn's mom before we left was, don't let her die out there. And that's the only thought that went through my head right now, screaming at God. And for the life of me... Uh, I've never done this before in my life and I don't know why I did it then. I, totally, I just lost complete control. You know what a burpee is, right? You used to go up here and you squat down like a frog and your legs go out. I started doing half burpees. I did about six or seven of them, hands in the air, squatted down, jumped back up, hands down. I don't know why I did that. I was just freaking out. And the little Tonga, 13 year old kid right here, is just looking at me thinking, what kind of behavior is that? What does that do? I'm trying to figure out what our culture is. Why do why do you guys do that? I had no idea. But at the same time, I'm, as I'm doing these burpees, I'm yelling to Tonga, Tonga, run down to the to the house sick. There was a little medical clinic, a Catholic medical clinic, about a half hour away. Go run and tell, get on the, get on the 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 radio and and tell them we need a helicopter. And while I'm still screaming and yelling at God, and we're out in the middle of the South Pacific Ocean, tiny little island, and I knew that we needed to get Carolyn to that house sick. Why? I have no idea because they've never covered it, carried anything other than maybe a couple aspirin. Anyways, and, then, and I'm thinking, God, there's just no way. When this happens in the village, it takes at least a half an hour to get four, four six, or eight guys together. Then it takes another half hour for them to decide on how they're going to build a, a mat to carry a person. Then it takes them another hour to build it, and then it takes them half hour, 45 minutes to carry them there. And I'm thinking, God, she's not she's dead. <laughs> so I, I, I said, God, I'm calming down a little bit more. And I said, God, it's your translation. It's your people. These are your people. They're not mine. If you want the Soka people to have the Bible in their language, you're going to have to do something. And out in the middle of the Pacific where we are in this little tiny island, We lived on a little knoll up above the beach road. As soon as I finished praying that prayer, all of a sudden, of all things, a bulldozer comes driving up our knoll and parks right in front of our house, right by our porch, and just stops there. The guy driving it, his face is as as dark as my shirt, but it's gleaming as bright as the sun. It's not shining, there's just gleam coming from it. And I'm thinking, to Tonga, Tonga, or Tonga's gone. I'm thinking, whoever else was there at this point. Let's get Carolyn onto the bulldozer, and I yell at this guy, "We need the bulldozer road to the house sick." So I pick up Brett, who's about six months old, and I tell, I give him to somebody and say, "Here, take him to the house sick." And I start running ahead. And as I'm running to, from to, from our hamlet to the next hamlet, I see the village leader of, of the whole language group come out of his house leaning over the edge looking down at us and he's peaked white, white as a ghost. I don't know why. And I'm still just running ahead. We finally get to the house sick. Within 20 minutes and of all things they have, the only thing they have in there is one vial of queen eat. I mean, for one thing, why didn't God just Pop a vial right in my hand right then. Why did it have a bulldozer have to show up? I don't know. Why didn't he just send a helicopter right then? I don't know. But later on, we know exactly why. God sent the bulldozer. We bulldozed the road. Helicopter came a day later because he couldn't get in because of the rain. Carolyn spent two weeks in the hospital with cerebral malaria and low blood sugar. And the doctor that was treating us said, You need to make a choice. Moses made a choice that determined the course of his life. The doctor says, you need to make a choice. He says, there's studies that have been done on Vietnam vets who have been in the battle lines, in the front line, who've been wounded. He says, if they do not get back into battle within two weeks, psychologically, they can't do it anymore. So you have two weeks to make a decision whether you're going to go back or not. Of course, that was Carolyn's decision. I couldn't make that for her. In our conversations, her conversations were, if we don't go back, who's going to go? The Silka people will never hear about Jesus. They won't have churches. They won't be able to write songs that they're writing these days. They won't have audio of the Bible. Carolyn made a choice even at that time, for mistreatment and reproach because she knew the value of going back. Moses knew the value. At the very end of that passage, verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. Carolyn made a choice that not only chose the course of our life, but it also chose the course of the Soka people's lives. When we went back two weeks later, the village leader who had never set foot in our house immediately comes running up to us and says, Doug, Doug, I have to tell you a story. When Carolyn got sick that day, I was having a vision and the bulldozer woke me up from my vision and this is what I saw. My vision was this. I saw a bulldozer Bulldozing the road and unearthing all of these pigs, and these pigs were flying out of the ground. And in Soka culture, demons are personified by pigs. And whenever demons are exposed, their power becomes useless, nil and void. So, his interpretation of the dream, he told me, was that bulldozer represents you guys, and whatever power you have is more powerful than our demons. And we want that power. And he went on to say, since the first day you got here, we hated you. We didn't invite you here. We didn't want you here. We tried to drive you out. We poisoned you. We told our kids not to play with your kids. We told, we ordered everybody to stay away from you. We didn't teach you our language. We didn't want you to be here. But here you are. You're back. And because you learned our language, because you dug toilets with us because you worked in our gardens with us because you ate our food you sat down with us you talked with us you demonstrated that you loved us and now we want to help with a translation there was a choice that determined the course of not only our life, but the lives of the Sokol people. Moses chose this course in life. And he also took a stand because it was at that point, taking that stand and doing what he did. This is probably a reference to remember the, in the story of Moses when he uh, was in Egypt and he was seeing this Egyptian brutalize uh, a Hebrew and Moses struck him and killed him. Uh, and then he had to run away to Midian, I believe it was, because Pharaoh put him on the hit list. He was, he was going to kill him. But that also then, that just separated him. Taking that stand for God's people separated him from the pleasures and the treasures of all of Egypt, and set him on an entirely different course. He now became the leader of the people of God, the Israelites, to free them from slavery from Egypt. So he took a stand. Moses knew who he was, he chose his course in life, and he took a stand. So what does that mean for you and me? How can we glean some of these behind-the-scenes, under-the-ground principles for our life when it comes to the process of Christian maturity? What does it include for us? Well, obviously it includes knowing who we are in Christ. Knowing who I am in Christ drives me to do what, what I do. And I think knowing who you are in Christ drives you to do the things that you do. When we first moved to Albany and was unpacking our truck, about a half a dozen guys from Willamette Community Church showed up and helped me unpack and unload our truck. And I I believe it was Larry Rosen I asked. I said, how often do you guys do this? Why do you guys do this? He says, that's just who we are. That's what we do. And, and he identified himself with Willamette Community Church. He identified himself as a servant in this ministry of helping people load and unload and move people where they need to go. And it was his identity that drove him to do what, what he did. So I don't know how many of you are, are already connected in that way at, at Willamette Community Church. But if you're not connected at this point, find a way to be connected. Find a way that you can serve sharpen that focus of who you are in Christ. I know Steve, Steve uh, uh, Brayton, is that who it is? Scott Brayton, sorry. Scott Brayton, is, he's, he's got a men's ministry where they're, next week they're going to be cutting wood for, for people who don't have it. And so for me, I'm seeing myself as, yeah, I want to be identified with helping others that way. I'm to be part of Willamette Community Church and be there to do that. And so how I view myself, that drives me to do what I do. The more I know that God loves me, that drives me to love others. The the more I know how much I'm forgiven, that drives me to forgive others. Knowing who I am in Christ shapes my spiritual progress. And so uh, one way is to know who we are in Christ. Second way is simply just to say no. Moses simply refused, right? Right? He refused to be known as, as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He said, no, it's not who I am. Nope. We can, all kinds of things we can refuse in life, say no to. No is a tough, tough word for us, isn't it? Whether it's time, whether it's, uh, for in Moses' case, the pleasures and treasures of Egypt, and the pleasures of sin and treasures of life that we have here. Simply saying no shapes us, because when we say no... That opens up opportunities now for yes, whatever they may be. Making wise choices. Sometimes no is the wisest choice. Sometimes yes is the wisest choice. Um, One of the greatest vague areas for me in life is choosing. Does God give me signs and then I choose? Or do I choose and then I say, oh, well, that was God's will? According to Moses, Moses valued something which was that reward and then he chose based on that value. And again, those values are the underlying areas of our life. Choosing wisely. And then the last thing is taking a stand for what you believe. Growing up, I was a a gym rat I love sports. I was involved in sports. played sports in high school. And every sport I played, I stole a uniform and took it home after, after I graduated. Practice uniform and a game uniform. After I became a Christian, I saw myself, for, for knowing who I am in Christ, I saw myself as standing for the truth. And every time I opened those dresser drawers... I could see there's no truth there. So I needed to take a stand. Do I want to live for truth or not? Do I want to go back to those coaches and say, here's the uniforms I stood. I could probably maybe just slip it under the door and give it back, and it's fine, and then I'm okay. But then I'd be avoiding the you know the confrontation of just admitting. So I went back to every coach, basketball coach, volleyball coach, baseball coach, and said, hey, uh, I want to live for the truth now. I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe he's the truth. I, don't want to give, I stole these from you guys. I want to give them back. That freed. I, I did not realize how much of a weight of guilt and shame that had on me until it was lifted. And that opened up avenues of new growth in that, my process of, of Christian maturity. It opened up avenues I never thought of simply because there's no shame and no guilt in that area anymore. Simply taking a stand for what we believe. So taking a stand is part of the maturing process. Making wise choices is part of the maturing process. And knowing who you are in Christ. In order for Jesus, for me at least in my life, to in, uh, as, as he increases, then there needs to be some downward growth in my life to make that happen. Uh, being rooted and built up for me as part of that maturing process so jesus must increase and i must decrease let's pray father we're so thankful that you don't leave us to our own devices that that we're not uh, uh, left alone thank you that you pursue us you pursue us you capture us you demonstrate how much you love us um we're so grateful, Father, for the process that you've started. We know that you're at work within us to make us not only want to do but uh, to do what you want us to do, but to, to want us to do that. And so as we leave this place this morning, we ask that you would speak to our hearts, convict us deeply uh, to allow you um, access into the inner regions, the depths of our, of our life, that we would turn them over to you. And most of all, we thank you for our Savior, Jesus. It's because of him we're here. Amen thank you for listening to Willamette Community Church's sermon series online join us again next week as we continue our study